0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the place to be this Saturday. Swing by before and after the Elton John concert that's across the street at Nationals Park.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data,
2: Nessus up at first, Hernandez back a bit at third, swing a line drive, base into the left field. Coming in to score from third is Fortes, stop sign up for the next runner. Lade going to third as the throw comes into the third baseman, Hernandez. A single to left at RBI for LeBlanc, his 11th in the big leagues this year. Two runs are home in the inning. The bases are loaded with still nobody out, and now the Marlins in front by the score of three to one. Adams 0 for 3, reached on an error, bounced to 3rd, thrown out of a great play by Roas in the hole, and it swings to the first pitch and hits into in the air to shallow right. Anderson coming
0: hard into a slide,
2: he caught it! He made a sliding
0: catch to end the ballgame! And welcome to that Chat for Saturday, September 24th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Lone Depot Park, a Al Galdi host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, who needs pitch clocks? The Nats on Friday night played a game that took just two hours forty-one minutes. But the Nats on Friday night did lose. Got one step closer to a 100-loss season. A 5-2 loss at the Miami Marlins in Game One of a three-game series. That's now a Major League worst: 52 and 98, including 14 and 50 in games against the National League East. Head on the show. We have updates on the near futures of Mackenzie Gore and Patrick Corbin. The future of Josiah Gray, of course, matters a lot to the Nats, and he on Friday night was the Nats starting pitcher for a second consecutive Friday night. Boy, it does feel like Gray has started a lot of games on Friday nights this season. I'm not sure what that means, but Mark, the good news is that Gray on Friday night did not allow a home run. I think we all would have signed up for that going into the game. The bad news is that he allowed four runs in six innings, continuing a uh, not-so-great ending to his season.
3: Yeah, this was, I break this down actually into, I was going to say two different starts. It almost could be three different starts because you have the first three batters of the game that he faces, double hit by pitch, double, and all of a sudden he's in a jam, but he gets out of that. Then he's really good and really efficient all the way through the fifth. He gets out of the fifth inning having allowed one run. He's at 68 pitches, hasn't walked a batter. You're thinking, okay, this is it. This is going to be a real strong outing for him and maybe even a way for him to finish out the year on a high note. And then comes the bottom of the sixth and it all fell apart there. And you could tell afterwards he was really down on himself for the way that it finished. He was not really interested in talking about the good things that he did for five innings, much more focused on what he did not do well in the sixth. And I get it. I mean, it's kind of like his season in a nutshell. There's a lot of good in there that you can see. And yet at the end of the night, the final numbers say that was not a good start. And that's where he is. That's where he's got to figure out going into next year how to turn those nights that there is good in it to end up with a good result instead of a negative result.
0: Gray gave up four runs in six innings, gave up eight hits, two doubles and six singles, issued two hit by pitches. He only issued one walk, which was good. The walk has played Gray in addition to the home run. Neither was an issue really on Friday night. He had three strikeouts. He over his six innings threw a lot of pitches, did throw a lot of strikes, 92 pitches, 61 strikes, Versus 31 balls. I do want to get into that one run Marlins first inning because this to me was interesting on several levels. So Gray began the outing in rough and I would argue somewhat unlucky fashion. He, in this one run Marlins first, gave up a leadoff double to John Birdie to left field on a ball that went right past and at starting third baseman on Friday night, Cesar Hernandez. I mean, this was a well hit ball, but it went like right by Cesar, who, you know, at the hot corner. Not used to playing the position, I get that, but the ball went right by him. Gray then issued a hit-by-pitch of Brian Anderson on an 0-2 pitch that, at least from what I saw, seemed to go off like the knob of the bat of Anderson as opposed to off Anderson. And then Gray did give up a first-pitch RBI double to Garrett Cooper off the left-field warning track to tie the game at one. So you can't excuse the double that was given up to Cooper. I think you can say some things about the double by birdie and then the hit-by-pitch of Anderson. So there's all of that to consider. But then there's also this. If it feels like Josiah Gray has given up a lot of runs in first innings this season, that's because he has. Josiah Gray now this season has a first inning ERA of 733. His ERA for the season is 517. Neither is good, but the first inning in particular really has plagued Josiah Gray this year. He does not get off to good starts in games. So kind of a lot to process with that first inning for Josiah Gray. But I thought that that was Really interesting first inning for several reasons for Gray.
3: So I had the same thought on the hit by pitch. I thought it hit the, the bat, but there was no argument from anybody. They didn't review it. There was nothing like that. So either they were convinced that it was the right call or they just didn't think it was worth it to challenge that. But I did think that was odd. It was an 0-2 curve ball. It's certainly not a count that you're expecting to lose a hitter like that. He did not get great defense behind him in this game, either from Cesar Hernandez at third base there or Later in the game of play that Luis Garcia could have made at second base, that could have changed some things as well. The first inning struggles, I think it may have something to do with something I wrote a little bit about in my story, which was he got in trouble right off the bat off his fastball. We know that's really been the pitch that's given him the most trouble this year. He doesn't command it well. When he does throw it over the plate, it gets hit hard. So both of the doubles off fastballs. And then immediately he says, okay, I'm going right to my breaking balls. And he strikes out back-to-back hitters on sliders, gets a uh, ground out to end the inning on a curveball. And from that point on, he really did not throw that many fastballs in the rest of the game. It was a lot of curveballs, a lot of sliders. And then he also, and this is the first time we've seen this, he winds up throwing more sinkers than four-seam fastballs. It's something that's kind of slowly developed here over the course of the summer. It's another pitch that he's trying to perfect It's a fastball, has fastball velocity, but it does have movement on it that could end up being more effective for him than his fastball, which we know has been a problem. That's really his biggest issue. If he can get to a point that he trusts that sinker, and almost ditches the four-seamer or only throws it on occasion, that could solve one of these big issues that he has. and We saw that there for about five innings in the game where he went away from the four-seamer, threw the sinker along with the breaking balls, and had success with that. So I'm curious to see if he makes another start this year and then going into next year, if that becomes a bigger part of his arsenal.
0: It's a weird deal, right? Because most pitchers, the majority of their pitches are fastballs. And it's kind of an odd thing to say, well, you want him to be a great starting pitcher, but his fastball is a problem. Like, that's kind of like, hey, wait a second. Like, the bulk of your pitches, in theory, are going to be fastballs. The first inning thing, yeah, I mean, like I said, ERA is 733. The other guy on the Nats this year who has been woeful in first innings is Patrick Corbin. Corbin has a first inning ERA of 7.76. The two Nats pitchers who have thrown the most first innings this year are the guys with the two highest first-inning ERAs by far. Corbin, 7.76. Gray, 7.33. Now, some of this can be random, like Eric Fetty's first-inning ERA is only three. Paolo Espino's first-inning ERA is only 265. Anibal Sanchez's first-inning ERA, is only three. But, you know, it's worth noting the first inning historically is the highest scoring inning in games. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, your best batters are highest up in your lineups. And so you're, in theory, facing opposing teams, best hitters in first innings. But that is a real bugaboo, like that you got to be able to navigate that. You know, if if the Nats aren't going to use openers, which we don't think that they are, guy like Gray really has got to get his arms around this first inning thing because if just the first inning was better for him this season, that five plus ERA would look a lot better on the year. So, you know, you think about this, like he's got to work on the homers, got to work on the walks. He's got to figure out this pitch selection thing that you just outlined. And he's got to work on the first inning issue. So the to-do list for Josiah Gray this offseason is rather long.
3: It is. I think that first inning, though, could kind of tie in with the pitch selection. What I was trying to get at there is You start a game, you want to establish your fastball. You hear that from most pitchers. Well, if you don't have a fastball that you trust or it leaks over the plate or you have trouble commanding it for strikes and you start walking batters, that's how you get in trouble. Maybe it amounts to him opening a game saying, hey, I'm going to focus on breaking balls right off the bat in the first inning. Or if this sinker does develop to the point that he's comfortable with it, that is a type of fastball and might allow him to do a better job getting ahead of the count and avoiding that trouble. But you're right. Even the best pitchers, usually you say, get him in the first inning. That's your best shot at it. And I don't know, that is something he has to figure out. Like you said, there's a lot of things for him to work on. I'm really fascinated to see how it goes because this is not, you know, there are other pitchers you say with those kind of numbers overall and you say, and it kind of feels like a hopeless cause. I think we all agree that in this case, there's a lot to like there, but there's a lot of work to do around the fringes of all this to try to turn him into the pitcher that they think he can be. He's certainly not there yet, but it's not like this has been a lost cause. It's not like you get to the end of the season and say, boy, I don't know what they thought they saw in him. He's just not at all the pitcher that they thought they were getting.
0: No, he's talented and he seems to be like a good guy, a hard worker. You know, you talked about how he's hard on himself. You know, he takes his craft seriously. I think there's value in the fact that he has stayed healthy throughout this season. So I think he deserves credit for that. I think the Nats deserve credit for keeping him healthy on the year. I think it's just really disappointing that his season is ending like this. This was a fourth consecutive bad start for Josiah Gray on Friday night. And it's like, you know, in this season, especially for the Nats, you'd love to have Something to cling to with a guy like that of, hey, he ended his season well. He displayed improvement as the year went on. He has regressed as opposed to progressed as the year has gone on. And that's what's troubling. Now, does that mean that, you know, he's not going to end up being a good pitcher? No, but um, Josiah Gray, especially like if you were scripting out this Nat season, he would have been one of those guys who said, hey, we want to see him playing well come September, pitching well come September. We're not seeing that.
3: Yeah, he's a guy you would love to have seen finish better than he was earlier in the year. And it turns out he was best like in June and since then it has not been the same. And the disappointing thing here, this last start against the Marlins, a team not known for hitting in a big ballpark where he was able to not worry about giving up the home runs, probably the best matchup he's going to get the rest of the way. We still don't know when or if he's going to pitch after this, but the only teams that he could face after this are the Braves, the Phillies and the Mets. And I'll be interested if Davey Martinez actually wants to try to avoid having his season end on one of those starts. This felt like the one best chance to finish on a real high note, and maybe shut him down after it, and he ends up not delivering the way you'd want. Is it too much to expect that he could then turn it around and finish strong against those other lineups?
0: Wow. So you think it's possible Friday night was Gray's last start of the season? Mm-hmm. Davey threw out the
3: possibility, said we really have some things to think about over the next two, three days. The problem, I think in a perfect world, they maybe would have said this is it. The problem is we're going to get to with Patrick Corbin, who's a little uncertain at the moment himself. They may need Josiah to make another start, no matter what, because of Corbin's potential unavailability with his back issue, because they're waiting a little bit longer on Mackenzie Gore. Somebody's got to make a start at some point next week. So even though it would maybe be best for Josiah Gray to call it a, a season right now, they may feel compelled to have him start another game, which is not a situation you want to find yourself in.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get into it then. So you have Patrick Corbin, whose last start was cut short due to back spasms. And we have Mackenzie Gore, who's been on this ramp up. And now it turns out is going to be making another minor league rehab assignment. So it sounds like if Gore is going to pitch at the major league level for the Nats, it's only going to be once. I mean, that's for certain. And it still feels like even that's not a guarantee that he's going to end up doing that. But with Corbin, just reading what you wrote for Friday, it sounds kind of up in the air whether he's going to pitch for the Nats again this season. What's your sense? Do you think Corbin's going to be shut down or no?
3: So he did uh, throw and play catch from like 90 feet uh, before Friday's game and said that things were a lot better with his back. So just the fact he was able to do that only a couple days after having to depart a game in the first inning with a back injury, that's a good sign. Now, that said. He's got to continue to do it. He's got to get off a mound here at some point soon, see if that's fine. They certainly don't want to risk anything really bad happening there. I'm sure there is temptation on the Nationals part. Again, in a perfect scenario, knowing the kind of season this guy has had, he did pitch pretty well down the stretch. I think four of his last five starts were pretty strong. You'd kind of like to end on a high note there and not risk any further injury. But again, They need some starts here down the stretch. They do have to finish out the year and facing some difficult opponents. So I think they're going to see how he feels the next few days and make that determination. They could also push him back a little bit. There's an off day, so it would allow them to wait until maybe like Wednesday before he has to make that start. So they've got a little bit of time, but it is definitely uncertain at this point. He's still got to show them some things to convince them that he's going to be fine. There's no risk letting him pitch again. So there's that. On Mackenzie Gore, he is going to make another rehab start Monday for Rochester. They want him to get to five innings, 75 pitches. They feel like he's just not quite there yet. He's not as sharp as they would like him to be, not as stretched out as they'd like him to be. So, yeah, that would leave him only one potential start for the Nationals. Now, do the math, look at the calendar. They have a doubleheader next Saturday against the Phillies. That would line up for him, and that would make a lot of sense. You call him up. He's the extra guy for that game. You get the extra roster player. He starts one game of the doubleheader, and then that would be his one-and-done start for them. So I think if things go well, that's probably what we're looking at, but there's still a lot of uncertainty here, and there are some decisions they got to make over the next several days.
0: So with Corbin, I mean, personally, I don't care about this. I know there are people who do, but the potential for him to have a 20-loss season, he's 6-18. and Do you think that that's factoring into the Corbin decision or no?
3: I know he insists that that doesn't matter to him. He wants to go out and pitch. And I sense that the Nationals aren't looking at that as a reason. I think this would be a case of, hey, he may not be healthy. Let's not force the issue there. If they get to a point where they clearly have five other starters who are healthy and need the work, they would maybe say that would be a reason to do it. But I don't think that they want to shut him down because of his record. Now, we say that he's out 18 losses. If he got to 19 and there's still a chance of another start, maybe then it's a different story now that he's won away from doing something that has been done only, what, once in the last 40 years. But I know, take him at his word or not, Patrick Corbin really does not want to shut himself down for that reason. He wants to finish out the year. I think if nothing else, he can end the season and say, I posted every five days, made every start, gave him everything I've got, and potentially even finished kind of strong after a dismal year otherwise. I think that matters to him.
0: Yeah, I mean, prior to that last abbreviated start, Corbin had pitched well in four of his last five starts. I mean, you can make the case Corbin is ending his season well. Anibal Sanchez is ending his season well. Gray is not ending his season well. It's kind of like, OK, good for Sanchez, good for Corbin. Gray's the guy who you want to be having his season ending well, and that's not happening right now. Nats Chat is brought to you by BetterHelp. How we care for our minds
1: affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's been continually recommended to me that therapy is the way to go in modern times. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash NatsChat. That's BetterHelp.com slash NatsChat.
2: 2-1 pitch. Swing and a line drive toward the right field line. Slicing, it is a fair ball! It'll be extra bases for Manessas. Abrams scores. Joey's on his way to second and in standing with an RBI double. So Manessas with his 12th double, his 26th run batted into the year against the Nationals. A run here in the eighth. It's now Miami 5 and Washington 2.
0: Well, offensively for the Nats in this 5-2 loss at the Miami Marlins on Friday night, Nats did have eight hits in the game, had a leadoff homer in the game. Lane Thomas homered on the second pitch of the game, but then not much else happened offensively for the Nats the rest of the game. The Nats finished with the eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. The Nats drew zero walks the entire game, struck out 10 times, went one for eight, With runners in scoring position, uh, you did get a run in the top of the eighth inning off doubles from C.J. Abrams and Joey Manessis. So nice to see that. And like I said, the home run from Lane Thomas. I mean, Lane Thomas now has 17 home runs this season. He has been so much better lately as compared to earlier in the season. And it sure feels like in a lot of first innings lately. That's funny. We just talked about Josiah Gray in first innings. Thomas, in a number of first innings lately, has let off uh, Nationals games or Nationals bottom halves of first innings uh, with hits or just with getting on base. But man, between that first inning on Friday night and the eighth inning on Friday night, not very much happening offensively for the Nets.
3: I mean, when he clobbers that, uh, what, second pitch of the game from Braxton Garrett for a homer, you're thinking, okay, this could be a good night for them. And then Garrett immediately strikes out the next three batters on like the first two were on three pitches. And then uh, Luke Voigt managed to work the count a little bit before he struck out. But Garrett never looked back from that point. He's a really deceptive guy. He was getting them to chase a lot of stuff out of the zone. A lot of strikeouts there. And if not for the fact that they pulled him after the sixth inning, it could have kept going on all night. He was showing no signs of slowing down. So that was frustrating to see. A lineup that we've talked about has been pretty good or much better here lately just go ice cold after that first home run. Joey Meneses looked lost until his fourth at-bat. We have not seen that from him much at all. Struck out twice, grounded out. He did not look comfortable at the plate at all. I guess that's a credit to Braxton Garrett, who had them off-balance throughout the whole game. They had a couple of chances in the third and the fourth with runners in scoring position, but that was it until the eighth inning when they finally got to the bullpen. And a pretty frustrating night offensively because this looked for a long time like a tight 1-1 game. They could have scratched across another run or two. They could win this thing. And then between Gray's struggles in the bottom of the sixth and there's the complete lack of offense from the Nationals, the game just slipped away from them.
0: Alex Call did go two for four with a couple of singles. Victor Robles went two for four with a couple of singles. CJ Abrams had a double and a single, and Joey Manessis had that aforementioned RBI double. But you also had some rough nights for Nationals batters in this game Luke Voigt, 0 for four with three strikeouts. Riley Adams, 0 for four. Left three men on base. I do want to note this with Lane Thomas. Lane Thomas, through the month of July for the season, had a batting average of 231 and on base percentage of 284 and a slugging percentage of 388. I mean, some really bad offensive numbers. And you look at where he is at now. The batting average for the season is only 249. And the on base is only 305, and the slugging is only 423. But the numbers have come up appreciably since the end of the month of July. And Thomas, for this month of September, batting 291 with a 374 on base and a 494 slugging percentage. He really is having a good month of September. It's been very nice to see that. Not having a good night on Friday night was Cesar Hernandez, who uh, was an at. Number two batter. Uh, Davey Martinez is still doing this. He's not playing Cesar often, but when he does, you will still see him in that number two spot. I don't understand this. He was playing third base. We know that that's not a position that he's played a lot of here in recent years. He had a bad offensive night 0 for 4, two strikeouts, left three men on base, and he had a rough defensive night as well. So we already mentioned one bad defensive moment in that one run first, allowing A well hit grounder off the bat of John Birdie to go right by Cesar for a leadoff double. But then in a Marlins one run seventh inning, Cesar Hernandez, on about as routine of a ground ball as you'll see, committed a one out throwing error on a grounder off the bat of Brian Anderson. And Cesar made a throw that was high and pulled Joey Manessis off the first base bag. Now, the Manessis portion of this play I think is interesting because Manessis actually did a nice job of making the play close and nearly tagged Anderson out. Off Anderson having overrun first base. But then Manessis, instead of just trying to tag the base, tried to tag Anderson. Anderson had overrun first base. Manessis tries to tag Anderson instead of just tagging the base or stepping on the base. And Anderson was safe at first base despite a challenge by the Nats. So I think the Manessis aspect of this is worthy of conversation. But look, it starts with Cecil Hernandez on, again, a very routine ground ball. He has plenty of time and he just makes a bad throw to Manessis at first base.
3: Yeah, that's that's really where it begins. And, and you're right. And it's funny, I didn't even think about the fact that Manessas all he had to do was just touch the base. It's not a situation a first baseman finds himself in that often. You see a guy diving back to the base, you think, oh, I better tag him, not realizing that he hasn't even touched the base and it's still a force out. You just don't see that very often. But, but the reason Hernandez is at third base on this game, facing a left-hander, Davey decides to give Ildemar Vargas a day off. Lefty, lefty, decided not to Take a chance with that. They really don't have anybody else on the current roster who can play third base. It's as simple as that. They just don't have anyone. It's become Vargas's job entirely. Uh, since they got rid of Michael Franco. And, you know, there may not be many more opportunities like this. It may just be Vargas the rest of the way, but it does kind of remind you there are some (laughs) significant holes on this roster as currently constructed, especially when they continue to use a spot on a DH who isn't even able to hit or do anything. Nelson Cruz continues to sit with an eye infection. So they're really playing shorthanded here. They've got a bunch of catchers. They don't have a whole lot of position players on the bench. And it's not like there's tons of guys at AAA, they could call upon to help them here. They're just really kind of limping to the finish line in a a few regards like that when it comes to the roster.
0: Why do you think though Davey has to put Cesar Hernandez in that number two spot? Like if you have to start Cesar fine, why does it have to be that he's in the spot that most teams reserve for their very best batters? Like what is that about?
3: I guess in this matchup, you're saying, okay, it would be Alex Call to hit second. We've seen him do that sometimes against the lefties. So you could do that. Now you need number five hitter. And it's either Hernandez, Garcia, who's left-handed, Robles, Adams, or Abrams. So not a lot of great options when you're facing a lefty. This is where we do, I think, see, not that Nelson Cruz is an intimidating presence, but if he's in the lineup, he's certainly going to be a part of that. And honestly, I think we're really noticing how much they're missing Cabert Ruiz from an offensive standpoint. I know Riley Adams had a couple nice games, Barrera. Had a good game there. But you're talking about a guy who had ascended to the point that he was hitting in the middle of their lineup on a regular basis, and he's been out. And the other catchers filling in the rest of the year, these are guys who hit eighth or ninth for the most part. So they're just lacking on a nightly basis in like five good hitters to put at the top of your lineup. And somebody from the rest of that group has got a bat somewhere. Davy's decision there is let's spread them out a little bit rather than go one, two, three, four with our best guys and then have a vacuum after that put Cesar in the number two spot and hope that other guys can get on and Voight and Call can drive them in, but it certainly didn't work in this
0: game. No. I mean, C.J. Abrams has been better lately. Maybe instead of batting him ninth, he could bat second. Maybe you have Manessis bat second instead of third and you finagle things that way. I mean, there are options. It does not have to be, even in this you know dying portion of a lost season, that Cesar Hernandez is batting in the number two spot. So, you mentioned the lack of options for the Nats at third base. You can always email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We got this email from Brian McLaughlin. He says, The Yankees have designated Miguel Andujar for assignment. I really hope the Nats claim him. I believe he is a better option than Carter Kiboom until Brady House is ready. Certainly a realistic competitor for the 2023 third base job. You know, it's interesting with Miguel Andujar because at one time, he was considered a very promising player for the Yankees. Miguel Andujar, for the 2018 season, had an OPS plus of 130. His career since then has come crashing down. This is, though, his only his age 27 season. The Nats clearly are in need of help at third base, options at third base. So that's something that would make some sense. But, you know, you think about next year at third base, whatever you want to say about Carter Keeboom, I mean, you cannot go into next season as like, he's the plan. You know, he can be part of the plan. He can be an option for the plan, but the Nats need to get someone who can potentially play third base for them next year, it would seem.
3: Yeah, I think so. And I think they have to be careful not to just have Vargas be their plan B. I think having him as their utility infielder makes a whole lot of sense, and there will be opportunities for him to play all across the diamond. But I don't think you want to set yourself up where if Carter Keyboom either isn't healthy or has another week spring training and you say, okay, he's not the guy after all, then now you enter a season with Ildemaro Vargas as your only third baseman. So yeah, I do think they have to look somewhere, whether it's Andrew Hark, They're not going to bring back Michael Franco, but somebody like that with some experience that you probably bring to camp on a minor league deal, give them an opportunity to win a job and prove they should be the guy. I think that is something they need to, to look at. That is probably That and corner outfield are probably the biggest question marks, I would say. At this point, we're going to assume Manessis is back probably at first base. I think we can probably assume that Void is back as the DH. So I think there's at least one corner outfield position that's uh, up for grabs. And then third base, I think, is a significant question mark as they move forward.
0: One other email here. This comes to us from Rabbi Eric in Arlington, Virginia. He asks a question that we have talked about in the past, but not lately. He says, First of all, your dogged determination to see this season through to the end is an inspiration to listeners and fans. Well, thank you, Rabbi. Uh, he says, as the Nationals approach their 100th loss, I think about the back-to-back 100-loss teams of 2008 and 2009. i am been interested to know how you think the 2022 Nats compare to those earlier rock-bottom teams. Like I said, we have talked about this because I've asked you, is this the worst Nats team or were those teams worse? We still have a little bit of a ways to go for this season. So, you know, let's see what this season ends up being. But as things stand right now, what do you think? 08, 09, or 2022 in terms of the worst Nats team that you have seen?
3: I think that certainly about a month ago, I would have said this was the worst team, that there really were way more nights this year that I felt like they were not competitive. and The teams they were putting out there really did not look like they belonged on the same field as some of the teams they're facing, especially within their division. And I don't feel like I felt that way as much in 08 and 09, despite those teams having all kinds of issues and really not being good. But I do think the last month has changed the perception somewhat as you start to see some potential building blocks emerge. I think you get to the end of this year and there may be more pieces to the puzzle already in place now than there were back then in 08 and 09. There were very few guys on that 09 team who were part of the team that won in 2012. I think Ian Desmond had just come up. Jordan Zimmerman was a rookie and then got hurt. Strasburg had not debuted yet. Harper hadn't even been drafted yet. Ramos had not been acquired yet. So, I mean, they were a long ways away. We don't know how this is going to play out now, but I do feel like there's potential for five or six guys on the current roster to be a part of this when they do potentially win in a few years. So, I think that leaves me a little more encouraged right now than I was back then. But certainly, there have been good chunks of this season where the actual product they're putting on the field feels like it has been inferior to any of those previous 100 loss teams.
0: From purely a number of losses standpoint, this team is set to be the worst team for the Nats since the team came to D.C. 103 losses is the most losses a Nats team has had. That was that 9 team. The Nats already now are at 98 losses for this year, and you still have more than a week to go in the season. So it seems almost a certainty that the Nats are going to surpass the 103 loss mark. You know, you're still wondering... If the Nats are going to surpass the all-time franchise record for losses in a season, 110 in 1969 by the Expos, although it would seem that the Nats are going to avoid a 110 loss season. I think what's also different, too, about this season, and this is more an emotional thing than an actual thing, but, you know, at least in 08-09, the team had just gotten here. There was a sense of better days are coming I think now you've experienced the better days. You've gotten spoiled by the better days. This season has included trading away a key piece of the better days in Juan Soto. And so, you know, it's been a difficult season to stomach if you're a Nats fan. 08 and 09 were difficult, but there was always that sense of, hey, it's bad now, but it's going to be getting better later. It's going to get better for the Nats, Okay, They're not going to be bad like this forever. But, you know, having experienced that great run of 2012 through 2019, you know, it is, I think, tougher to digest something like what's happening with the Nats right now. So, you know, I think from an emotional standpoint, this season might be the toughest. I think it's safe to
3: say this is the most depressing national season (laughs) for a lot of reasons, but on the field and also what's going on on the ownership side, that it's going to leave everyone feeling a lot more depressed than maybe they were back in the day. But that doesn't mean it can't get better. But there's a lot of things that need to happen here in the next year or two.
0: Yeah. And if the right ownership takes over, then maybe things get a lot better and uh, much sooner than we ever anticipated. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site and do not forget about the first ever Nats Chat Podcast Party Friday night, October 14th at 7 at Walters right across the street from Nationals Park. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
4: Pull <laughs>